You're listening to the Redemption Hill Church podcast from Tallahassee, Florida. For more information, visit our website at rh-church.com. Hey, Pastor Chad here. I'm so glad you've taken the time to listen. We're currently studying verse by verse through the book of Acts. Among other things, we'll see the mission, the persecution, and the expansion of the church. Now, time for this week's message. All right, if you guys have your Bibles, um, we're gonna, we've been uh, going through the book of Acts. I gotta, today, I've got to make sure for sure that i got my timer on. Otherwise, it will be a really long service, which I know you will all enjoy, but um, I just want to make sure we're good because of communion. So, so we've been going through the book of Acts, verse by verse, and, uh, and today we're going to get into Acts chapter 10. So if, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 10, you can, but before we actually read today's passage, um, I want us to read... Uh, a few verses out of the book of Matthew. Matthew, the last cha- So Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, second half of the book. And then we're going to go to the last chapter of the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. So Matthew chapter 28. And uh, we're, I'm going to read verses 19 and 20. And they're pretty familiar verses, I think, for, for, for many. But to set the stage here, this is Jesus' like final words to the disciples. The disciples are, are gathering around Jesus. Jesus has already been arrested. Jesus has already died on the cross. He's already resurrected from the grave. He spent, about 40, he spent 40 days there on earth hanging out with people and doing different things. And now he's about to ascend and go up to heaven. And before he leaves, and we mentioned this last week in youth. At D-Now we talked a little bit more about this. But again, before he leaves, he's, he's having this final conversation, these, these last words with his best friends here on earth. I mean, guys, these 11 guys that have been with him for about three and a half years who had lived life with him. I mean, just everything, did everything. They traveled. I mean, they, they forsake everything to follow him. And these are his closest earthly friends. And, and again, I, I would in, encourage us to, to think, if, if you had that opportunity where you knew going into a conversation that it would be your final conversation with, with somebody, it'd be a pretty memorable conversation, wouldn't it? I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't fill it with just nonsense, but it would be those, those really sincere, adamant, like, this is the last thing I, I want you to remember conversation. And so Jesus, before he ascends into heaven in verse 19, says this, to his disciples. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus says, as he's about to ascend into heaven, he goes, go, you guys go. You need to go. You make disciples. You need to go teach, you need to go baptize, you need to go. And so if you turn a few pages over, a few books over to the book of Acts that we're currently studying, I want you guys to, to go, before we get to Acts chapter 10, I want you to go to the first chapter of Acts. The first chapter of Acts in Acts 1.8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Is 
again, kind of the great commission reworded. And so, again, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And this is what he says um, in verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so these guys right now, they're on the outskirts of, of Jerusalem. And Jesus tells them, you guys are going to go, go back to Jerusalem. And eventually, you're going to go to Judea, and then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And as we've gone through the book of Acts now, as we've gone through the first nine chapters, and we get over into to the 10th chapter, so you can flip over to Acts chapter 10, we've begun to see this, this, this growth. We've seen the disciples go, and, and um, we've seen them go into Jerusalem. And really the first seven chapters is, is basically the disciples in Jerusalem. And then we begin to see the, the disciples spread out a little bit. And they've, they've gone into Judea. We, we saw Philip in Samaria. And they're doing this. It's beginning to grow. But, but this is pretty important because as we get into Acts chapter 10, everything changes. The whole dynamic, the whole... The whole um, the whole mission begins to take these amazing and awesome changes. Up till this point, as they're traveling, as they're going into Judea, into Samaria, and in Jerusalem, they're, they're, they're going and they're sharing, and they're going to the synagogues, they're, they're spending time in the temple, they're sharing their faith, but it's all focused around Jews, their, their own nationality, their own religious sect there. It's, it's just simply them taking the gospel to, to their own people. And there's this one other group that's, that's not been involved at all, and they're referred to in the scriptures as Gentiles. And really, if we can make it, to bring it into simple form, you have Jews, and then everybody who isn't Jewish is a Gentile. And there's this, remember when we talked about early, early on, when the, one of the first weeks of, of Redemption Hill Church, we, we looked at John chapter 4, and we talked about the woman of the well. When Jesus spoke this one of the well, she was a Sumerian woman. And we've talked before now on a few occasions, there was this great um, division between the, the Jews and the Samaritans, right? And really what it is is the Samaritans were just, were kind of like this um, halfling. The, the, the Samaritans had intermingled and had intermarried with the Jews, and so they weren't allowed. They were, they were kind of viewed as this half-breed type people and so there there's some Jewish descent but there's there's a lot of hatred between the two but that hatred doesn't even compare to this division between the Jews and the Gentiles and when we read um, or when, if we were to look at the Mishnah which is the this Jewish collection of laws it would have been part of the Old Testament and then some other traditional laws they added in um, you begin to see this ex extreme hatred that the Jews had for these Gentiles to the point where if, if a Jew were to marry a Gentile, they would hold a funeral for the Jew. That's pretty intense, isn't it? I mean, it was, it was, it was so bad that, that if, a, if a Jew actually touched a Gentile, he had to go through a ceremonial cleansing before he was allowed back into the temple. If they, were, if they happened to be walking and their clothes happened to brush against a Gentile, they were to go back to their homes, remove their clothing, and burn it. Like, that's pretty intense, isn't it? I mean, we, we can go back in our own um, 
nation's history, and we can, before or during this, the civil rights movement, and we, we see this segregation between um, blacks and whites, and there's a lot of awful stories. But this really, that, even that, is as bad, as horrible as it was, really pales in comparison to this division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so as Jesus gives that great commission that we read in Matthew and, and, and we reasserted here in Acts chapter 1-8, there's certainly this point in time where, that goes through these disciples as they're thinking as they're going and they, they think they're being faithful and they're going and telling the other Jews, but in their minds they've got to be thinking the whole world must be the whole Jewish world. In fact, as we talk about this hatred for the Gentiles, Again, going, referencing back into the, to the Mishnah, the, the Jews believed this, that there was only one purpose for a Gentile. That the sole purpose of a Gentile was to fuel the flames of hell. That's intense, isn't it? Now the disciples, they're Jewish. And they've been going and they've been telling people about Jesus and, and, and spreading the gospel. But their own upbringing, their own traditions and things that they've learned and taught and, and thought for these years had to have influence. And, and you have to kind of wonder as they're doing this, as they're, as they're thinking and they consider these Gentiles, there's that part where you wonder, man, do they even, do, do they even consider them part of the world? And this is where that story begins to change. And so Acts chapter 1, and we're going to or Acts chapter 10. I'm going to read the first eight verses. We're going to talk about those. So Acts 10, starting in verse 1, says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stayed at, stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angels who had spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And so we're introduced to this guy, this, this centurion, this Roman soldier, Cornelius. Now, this is what's it's interesting to me. I, I think as I read this and considered this passage this past week, um, we're going to kind of focus much of our attention in on, on one verse today. But, but for us to, to, to see this, Cornelius is, is described as a centurion. A centurion in that day would have been um, held or would have been in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. They're here, and, it, and again, I don't think the Bible just happenstance adds things in here, but at the very beginning it mentions that, that they're located in Caesarea. Caesarea is this harbor town, and during this time it was one of the capital cities of the Roman Empire. And this centurion... Cornelius is in charge of a hundred men located there. And they mentioned that he's part of this Italian cohort. And, and so this Italian cohort, they, these guys were known as not necessarily being the first ones into battle, but they were the last ones to leave the battle. 
They were, they were not going to leave until it was all done, until the task was completed. A centurion was, was known for a, a person who was, was brave, resolute, who would stand, who, who didn't go looking for problems, who didn't go looking for trouble. But if trouble arose and he was there, he and his men would stay. It didn't matter if they were outnumbered or not. What's a side note, what I think is kind of interesting is, is this. As we look in the New Testament, we, we see three or four instances where a centurion is mentioned. And every time a centurion is mentioned in Scripture in the New Testament, they're held in good esteem. Luke chapter 7, we remember the story where the centurion is going. He finds Jesus because one of his servants is dying. And he asked Jesus if he could heal him. And Jesus says, yeah, let's, I'll, we'll, we'll go to your house. And he says, I'm not worthy of you to come to under, you're not, I'm not worthy enough for you to come underneath my roof. And it wowed Jesus. Uh, and Matthew 25, I believe it is, is as uh, Jesus had died on the cross. One of the centurions had witnessed all the events, had witnessed Jesus' death on the cross, and it was a centurion that said, truly this was the Son of God. And then here in Acts 10, we see this centurion, Cornelius. And this is what I want us to see here. Again, if you have, if you have your Bibles, let's draw attention to this. In, in the second verse, so, so Acts 10, verse 2. It mentions, as, he's, as they're describing Cornelius, a centurion of an Italian court, it says, He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. See, to me, there's a few things that kind of pop out there about in describing this Cornelius. One is this, that we see that he was a man of faith. The very beginning there, it talks about how he um, was a devout man. He feared God. Now, again, if we remember this, the, the Roman Empire, remember the Roman culture, this is a group that, that worshipped hundreds of gods. Between the, the Greeks and the Romans, you know, we'll get to this later on in the book of Acts, but, but they, had, they had gods for everything. Like every emotion, there was a God. It even gets to this point where they're so scared that they might forget that there's a God or not know that there's a God, that they create this this idol to the unknown God, just to cover all the bases, right? So these were people that, that their culture worshipped multiple gods. But yet we see this Cornelius, this centurion, this man of honor, brave, resolute, sees this, and, and no doubt in his dealings going through Israel and all that's taking place, he begins to see that there there's must be something more than all these multiple gods, that there's got to be this one God. And he becomes a devout man, a man who feared God. The second part of this verse that stood out to me was that his view of God, that his faith, he didn't hold strictly to himself. But, but notice where it says this. He says, with all his household. Last week in church, 
as we were talking about the end of the previous chapter, as we studied 32 through 43, I, I told, I, I tried to make this connection between what we talked about in our youth D-Now. And in that, while I, over the weekend, last weekend, tried to attempt to, to step on some of the youth's toes, last week I tried to step on our adult toes to remind us that as adults, we're foolish to think that we should expect our children to do one thing and us not to do it. That oftentimes in our faith, you know, we, we want them to be involved in the youth group. We want them to go to church. But for us, it's not always that way. Here, I believe we see this. We see Cornelius leading his family. You know, one of the great um, tragedies in our culture today is, I believe, a failure to a great extent of men to be leaders within their family. Um, guys, I, I believe this is, is not... God never calls us to dominate over women. I would never preach that. We had a veracity series a couple weeks ago. Where we talked about same-sex marriage. And in that, we talked about family. And went back to the way God orchestrated and organized families. And then that was very clear that, that we're, we're not to be dominant over that in God's eyes, we're equal. doesn't mean we're identical, but we're equal. And God honors us, or we ought to honor God both. But, but here's the deal. Scripturally, we look in Ephesians. God has charged us as men to lead our families spiritually. And when we look at our culture today, um, the family unit as a whole is broken, isn't it? that in, in many regards, uh, we have single moms raising families. We have um, moms that are bringing their children to church and dads who have other things that are more important. Now listen, I understand that there are vocations and things like that that cause people not to be here. But I want to encourage us as, as fathers, as husbands, and as men. Here we have in this passage right here, Cornelius, who, who quite honestly, if we could, if we could kind of bring this down, we, we have this guy here who, um, who is almost like an agnostic or an agnosis where he doesn't, he's without the, the full knowledge I mean, he believes in God, but he doesn't really know who God is yet. And so he's just doing what he can. He's just trying to ascribe what he's learned and what he knows. And even though he doesn't have all the answers, even though he doesn't see it clearly, he's doing the best that he can, and he's, he's leading his family that way. And we need that today. We, our country needs that more than, than we ever have. Our, our churches need that. I, I, Courtney went with Mackenzie this Thursday and Friday 
to Disney for their class trip. And so um, I was like Mr. Mom for one night. <laughs> Two days, but one night, okay? I have never been more tired in my life. I have never been more frustrated. <laughs> I mean, I have never been, I, have, I was at wit's end. And that was, that was two days, that was one night. And I, I think as we talk, as we consider that family, and I couldn't even imagine being a single parent raising children. Like to me, that was like such a huge eye-opener. So I'm going to encourage all of you moms to leave for a few days, leave the kids with dads. They're like, no, no. Moms are saying, amen. Dads are saying, no, no. It's time to go. I just think it's important, folks, that we consider that there. So we, we have this idea where we, where we see this, where Cornelius, like, he's this, he's this, we see this faith in him, even though he doesn't fully understand, even though he doesn't really know God exactly, he's, he's, he's unsure of a lot of things, he's, he's making these attempts. And then we see this, the way he's allowing this to transform his family. And again, really, I mean, consider this, like, they, this, his family had been in Rome, Okay, Rome is like um, the Hollywood or New York City of today. There was a thousand distractions, different things that could have grabbed him or his family's attention. Yet, even though he didn't fully understand it, he's been able to drive and inspire his family in the midst of their surroundings to pursue this God, this one true God. And then finally, I think we see this fervency of, of Cornelius. Okay, in, in there, after we see this the part about his, his um, household, it says, he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Okay, so in there it says he gave alms. This, this idea of alms, the, 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 the meaning of this word was to um, be exceedingly generous. In church today, and we just, we did it earlier, we, we, we do an offering. And a lot of times, if, if you hear us um, in church or hear different churches, been to church, they talk about offering, or they'll talk, use a kind of a church word called tithe. And, and then they get this idea of tithe going back to the Old Testament being um, a 10%, giving a 10% or a tenth towards God. Here's what's interesting. This idea of almsgiving here by this Roman centurion is above and beyond a tithe. Okay, so today, for us to kind of grasp this, I've, I've been 100% transparent with you guys before about the way we operate when it comes to our tithes and offerings. Okay, I don't know who gives what, when, or how. Okay? It's, it's set up, we have um, guys, they, as they collect it, they take it, they, they mark it all up, they give it to our accountant, they take care, they do all the, the, the counting, um, and then they'll give me a report that'll say this is how much we've collected. Period. That's, that's all I want to know. I don't want to know who gives. I really don't. Um, my belief of this, when it comes to tithing, that is 100% between you and God. You and God wrestle that. You want to talk about it biblically? We can talk about it biblically for sure. But, but I don't want that to affect our relationship. It can affect you and God's relationship. All right? But here's the deal. Today in the American church, not Redemption Hill Church, but in the American church today, a faithful church attender gives less than 3% gives less than 
Cornelius. Again, the guy who doesn't fully understand it, the guy who's, who's searching, who's, who's looking for God. He's giving these alms, and the way this is written dictates that this idea of alms giving meant he was giving somewhere between 40 and 50 percent. Now, I'm not asking for you to start giving 40 or 50 percent of your income. But if we put this in, begin to put this into perspective, like this guy, although he doesn't even fully understand it, it's changing his life. And he's pursuing it. He's, he's trying. He's, he's trying to learn it. He's, he's trying to, to do what seems to be right. And so not only is he, just, is he giving, but it, it talks about how he's praying continually. Here it mentions the ninth hour, which would have been three o'clock in the afternoon. And he was kind of following this, this Jewish tradition, their time slots where they were praying multiple times throughout the day. And so he's, he's praying continuously. So he's got this, this life that has all these great markers, doesn't it? I mean, he's giving. I mean, he's, he's fearing God. He's, he's praying. He's doing all these. He's raising his family right. Here, here's one of those things I think that we hear sometimes. That what happens to a person who does good things in life? Like they, they try their best. They do what's right. And maybe they've not prayed a prayer. Maybe they've not accepted Jesus, but they've done a lot of good things in life. Surely that person can't be lost. Surely that person can't go to hell because of that. To me, I believe part of the purpose and the reason with this particular passage, this is presented to us shows us that even though we can strive to be religious, even though we can strive to do good things, even though we can strive to have good morals, if we don't have Jesus, we don't get his blessings. And so as he's pursuing, as he's doing these things, he has a vision God sends an angel in this vision and gives Cornelius some instructions to send some guys over to, to Joppa to get this guy named Peter and bring him. Bring him back to Caesarea. Here's what's cool. Next week we're going to talk about this. Next week is when we, we read where Bacon becomes breakfast meat. Peter, while, while this is taking place, while this vision's happening here with, with Cornelius, God is dealing with, with Peter at the same time. To me, that's awesome. They're, they're in different towns. They're, they're about 25 miles apart. They're two, two and a half days journeys apart from each other. But while, while God is dealing with Cornelius, he's also dealing with Peter. Peter, really, who's the apostle to the Jews. I mean, Peter, the hard-nosed Jew, the one that we all throughout Scripture, especially before the resurrection, before Jesus' crucifixion, Peter's the guy that's always putting his foot in his mouth, always doing something stupid, isn't he? But yet God begins to work. If you remember last week, we talked about the very end of the passage last week where it described that Peter was staying with this guy named Simon 
who was a tanner. You guys remember that? And what was significant about that, and, and again, I don't, I don't think it's by accident because Jesus, or in, the angel as he's giving directions to Cornelius, tells him, listen, you go find Simon Peter who's staying with this guy named Simon who is a tanner. Again, this idea that a tanner would deal with dead carcasses, dead bodies. Because of that, they were considered unclean. Remember what I said last week that, that according to the Mishnah again, that they were allowed, if, if at any point in a relationship, the woman found out that her husband was a tanner, she could divorce him. They were considered unclean people. They were not allowed to live within the city. They were on the outside of the city. I mean, and just even consider this. They deal with dead animals, dead carcasses. Um, could you imagine the smell of their house? Probably not pleasant. But yet we begin to see how God begins to soften the heart of Peter because that's where he resides. That's where he stays. And that's where these walls begin to start crumbling down. This morning, I, I, I want us just to consider a few things. As we consider Cornelius, first, as I mentioned earlier, men that are here today, Cornelius didn't have the answers. He didn't really fully understand what he was looking for. Yet he was leading his family. We, we have the answers. It's all right here. Doesn't mean that life's easy. Doesn't mean that it always works out well. But we have the answers. We know the story. And if we don't, we can learn it. Men, I want to challenge us, and I'm not just saying you, us, that we lead, that we lead as good husbands who cherish our wives like Christ loved the church, that we are active fathers, that, that our, our focus isn't just solely on trying to create wealth that we can one day leave them, that would reside in a bank, but we focus our attention on leading them or leaving them a godly heritage. That we are fathers that raise our children to love God. And that, when, that we aren't just here and there on occasion, but, but our faith means something Monday through Sunday. That church means something, and it's not just something that we can go to on occasion or when it's convenient. And that church doesn't just reside Sunday morning, but our kids are able to see that dad believes this outside of a four walls. That we, dads, are praying with our children, praying with our wives, 
that we're the leaders that God's called us to be. Now, women, that doesn't let, us off, let you off the hook. I think as a whole, one of the things that stood out the most to me in this particular passage was that this Cornelius seemed to get it. And he did all these things. He did all the almsgiving. He, did, he was praying continually. He's, he's leading. His, he's doing all this stuff. Yet it's out of obligation. And we as believers, those of us who, who claim to know Jesus, those of, us, those of us who are involved in church, those of us who have our own Bibles and, and can read it, all those of us who, who claim to believe this stuff, we don't even do it out of adoration. What do you mean adoration? You see, if we, if we read the Bible, if we know the Bible, if we know Jesus Christ, if we know all that he's done for us, if we, if we can recite John 3, 16, we believe that, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish. If we believe that, I mean, if we believe Romans, or Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If we, if we understand or believe Romans 5, 8, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like that ought to propel us to this idea of adoration, of, of, of this wow factor where we're just like, wow, God, you've done so much for me. I mean, you've given up so much for me. You, you demonstrate your love in so many ways. From, from my wife to my children, to the friends in, in, in my life, to, to the job that you've given to me but most importantly, to the Savior who died for me. Like it ought to propel us. And that idea of fearing God wasn't that he was running trepid, but it was in awe of God and all that he had done. When was the last time that you sat back and honestly awed about God? When was the last time you just sat and thought about how amazing he is, how much he's done, what he is doing? When was the last time you sat in awe of God? This morning, maybe that's all you need. Maybe this morning is just you need a few minutes. In a, in a, a few moments, we're going to get into our communion. But, but you just need to be awed with God once again. And the last thing is, again, as Cornelius doesn't fully understand, doesn't know what he's signing up for, doesn't really fully know how to do these things. He's just doing what he knows as he receives this vision and as the angel gives him directions. Cornelius does it. He doesn't object. He doesn't ask a bunch of questions. He responds. He does. He goes. 
next week when we look at Peter. As he has his dream, as he has his vision, the angel only has to tell Peter, or only has to tell Cornelius one time, go to Joppa, get him, bring him back. It takes Peter three times. Peter says, no, Lord, <laughs> no, Lord. For us this morning, maybe you know God's been doing something in your life. It may come through a message. It may come through your, your quiet time reading your Bibles. Maybe in your time of prayer, as you're, as you're praying, as you're seeking God, that God's just really stirring your heart about something. And you've offered God a hundred excuses why you shouldn't, why you can't. Maybe it's, it's time that you apply the same faith that Cornelius did here. And you just go and do what he calls you to do. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for Cornelius and this pretty amazing story, God. God, I pray that in the next few moments as we go through an invitation time that you work on our hearts. And Lord, I don't know how you may have challenged us this morning. God, I do, I do pray specifically that you, that you prick the heart of every man here and every man that's not here. Lord, that you, help, that you rise, raise within us um, men that honor you, men that, that serve you, men that want to be good husbands, not for just the sake of being a good husband, but because they want to love their wives like you love the church and gave yourself for the church. Uh, men that, that want to be active participants in raising sons and daughters to love the Lord. Now, their focus and their goal is to pass on a godly heritage above just a financial inheritance. Lord, I pray that you be with all of us, that, that today that, that we just maybe take a moment and just reflect on how amazing you are and just sit in your presence and taste your awe once again. And then, Lord, if there's some here this morning that you've, you've been reaching, maybe it's some here today that They've never accepted you as their Savior. They're not Christians. They've never put their trust and their faith in you. Maybe, maybe that's where it starts. Maybe they're exactly like Cornelius. They've done a lot of good things. But they've not accepted you yet. And so, Lord, maybe it's there. Maybe it's, maybe it's something else. Another decision that you've been, been pestering them with. God, I pray that you today cement in them and give them the courage to step out and to go and to do and step away from all the excuses. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you work 
in your amazing way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Our goal at Redemption Hill is to see souls saved and lives changed. If the Holy Spirit spoke to you today and you made a decision, or maybe you have a question or a comment, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at chad, C-H-A-D, at rh-church.com. If you don't have a, a regular church home, we would love for you to consider visiting us. You can go to our website, rh-church.com, or find us on Facebook for directions. Until next time.